Hi there. This is Sam Musgrave, pastor over college and young adult ministry at Trinity Community Church. This podcast is a collection of the sermons from our gatherings. My prayer is that you will grow in knowledge and love for King Jesus, or maybe come to faith in him for the very first time. Join me now for this sermon. I'm already so encouraged by this evening from all the different aspects that have um, been afforded us tonight. So thank you all for those of you that prepared to lead those different portions of tonight and grateful to be in the Word of God with you all. Now, if you would turn in your Bibles with me to Esther, Esther chapter 2, Esther chapter 2. Verses 19 to 23. Esther chapter 2, verses 19 to 23. As you're turning there in your Bibles, I caught up this week. I've not been around for a little while. There have been different things pulling me away, and I haven't been able to enjoy the journey with you here in person. And I read as King Xerxes became furious and throughout Queen Vashti, after a six-month war summit and his invasion of Greece, he revisits the humiliation of his insubordinate queen. Some think that he had some regret over how that was handled. We're not sure. We just know that another campaign was launched, not to war, but Love. And how many regions does Xerxes rule? If you remember, those of you with good memories, remember that he rules over 127 provinces. 127 large nation-sized areas. From India to Ethiopia. Just gigantic the largest empire in world history to date at the time. Now, scouts begin to collect every beautiful young virgin from every one of those provinces. That is a lot of women. Ladies, can you imagine the panic as this Hunger Games of a beauty contest ensues. Gentlemen, can you imagine the panic as all the girls vanish? I mean, it would have been absolutely devastating. Courtships ended, romances dashed, young men ticked, young women petrified, and Think about the diversity of this Miss Persia contest. I mean, you had women from all over. You had like Bollywood actresses in their neon gowns that are doing their dances to impress the king. Keeping up with the Kardashians was set in Susa that year. 
And you have the, the Armenian uh, princesses. Countless jasmines were torn away from their Aladdins in Arabia. Mulans left their matchmakers in Kazakhstan and Uzbekistan. Cleopatras vacated Egypt with their trademark eyeliner. Black beauties from their homes in Ethiopia and Libya. Swarthy Mediterranean boarded ships from their islands out there in the, the, the sea. Turkish delights and fair-complected Europeans left town. It was, as I said, the Hunger Games of beauty pageants to decide who would be the next Miss Persia to become Mrs. Xerxes. Now, if you look back with me in chapter 2, verses 3 to 4, the, the contest ends with this. Let their cosmetics be given to them. Give them all the makeup. Give them all the, the dressings, all the, all the uh, lotions. The, as Nacho Libre says, the different creams and lotions. Uh, get them all done up. Then let the young lady, who is good in the eyes of the king, be queen in place of Vashti. And the word was good in the eyes of the king. Of course it was. He had the pick of the entire empire. I mean, of course, that is a good game plan. Think about this. Two million square miles with half of the world's entire population within its boundaries. And the winner, as we will learn, was living in the citadel. I mean, the whole empire is scoured for the next queen. And not only was Hadassah near Xerxes, she's in his capital, even closer. She's not just in the capital of Susa, she's within the palace of Susa. She's there. I mean, folks, listen. It is absolutely comical that God is unmentioned in the book of Esther. It's a joke. It's an intentional joke. You read this book, and it's almost as if fathers would be winking at their kids while reading this story. Because at every turn, every page, we see that God is orchestrating everything. And so the fact that he's not explicitly mentioned, it's like, oh, it, it's the reader's, be, you're, you're just begging you're begging your listeners to just shout out, God did that! And I think that's actually a literary strategy the author is employing. Stifling the readers without mentioning God. And, and, and it's almost like kids are just begging to say, God did that! That's not an accident. That's providence. And brothers and sisters, it's as if God is winking at us tonight through His Word. And what is he communicating? Do not worry about a thing. As Bob Marley says, because every little thing is going to be all right. For those who love God, who are called according to his purpose. It is all under his loving control. Folks, listen. I need to hear myself say words that I wrote yesterday afternoon. It's just been a day. It's been a day. And I'm reading those words and I'm thinking, oh, 
You wanted me to hear that tonight. The longer I live in the Lord, the more I realize how difficult it is to really latch on to that truth. Really, what I recognize is how little I've latched on to that truth my whole life. I've just become more and more aware how little I've clung to Jesus and really believed that he's working every little detail in my life for my good and his glory. And again, Esther is beating that drum. Now, we've met Mordecai, haven't we? Mordecai is almost certainly his Persian name. You've probably heard lots of this already, but I'm bringing us up to speed because we're only covering five verses tonight. His, his Persian name is Mordecai, probably after the chief god of the Babylonian pantheon, Marduk, Mardukai. Now, I'm going to ask a little bit of Bible trivia here. You remember Hananiah in the Bible? You got some shaking heads. That's good. That's what I was hoping for. You remember Hananiah? How about Mishael? Okay, we've got a couple nods. How about Azariah? Got a lot of shaking heads. I like that. Okay. I just shared their Hebrew names. Their Babylonian pagan names are Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Not Abednego. Abednego. How about this? Have you ever heard of Belteshazzar? You have, have you? His name being Daniel. Pagans had renamed all of them. These are, these are exiles. They're out in Babylon. They get new Babylon names. Why? Because, first of all, the commanders issued these names for them. But also, it was part of the strategy to acclimate them to Babylonian culture. They, they wanted to change their identity. They wanted them to forget their Jewish identity and make a new home in Babylon. They're the, the best of the talent, the cream of the crop. They want their gifts to serve the empire. And so what better way to do that than to wipe out their history, give them a new name, and call them by the gods of Babylon. So I'm not sure how much choice Mordecai or Hadassah, which we know by her Persian name, Esther, which is probably a derivation of Ishtar, a female goddess of of, uh, Persia. It's not their fault. They probably didn't have much control over that. Mordecai is no exception. The author connects his genealogy to King Saul, who had failed to execute King Agag. There's a great book by John MacArthur. It's really tiny. It's about killing sin, and it's called Hacking Agag to Pieces, because Saul refused to do it, and Samuel had to come along and tear him apart. And this, this battle, this, this, this rivalry, this This horrific event between King Saul and King Agag ends up tracing down to their descendants, Mordecai, and as we're going to learn, Haman or Haman. And that's going to be the big drama of Esther, okay? We got Mordecai from King Saul. We have Haman from King Agag, these descendants that are on a collision course with destiny. 
Mordecai's ancestors were nobility. They were exiled with the king. And so, much like Daniel and his friends, Mordecai is an elite in Babylon, though he is a Jew. He's serving in the royal palace. We have extra biblical evidence of a Mordecai being an accountant, an official accountant in the empire at this time. And after his uncle dies, Mordecai's uncle dies, he adopts his daughter, or Mordecai's cousin, as his own daughter. He brings her up. Her name's Hadassah. She's stunningly beautiful, and so she's collected in this big talent show for queen. The, the eunuch that's in charge of her, by the way, they're made eunuchs for the express purpose of being trustworthy with these young, beautiful girls. This eunuch just absolutely falls in love with her. He, he, he promotes her and he provides her every advantage he can afford. This eunuch knows the king's taste. He knows what the king's looking for. And so as the other contestants are just acting like little brats and asking for too much, Esther is coached to mesmerize King Xerxes. Now, if you're in the eunuch shoes, wouldn't you do this? Wouldn't, wouldn't you rather have a godly, kind queen? I mean, he's, he's wise, this eunuch, in helping her. So, Xerxes, preoccupied with the Greco-Persian War, which is now concluded, is determined to select the finest queen, and it takes four years from the events of the first chapter. This is a long time. He's taken his time with this. But Esther effortlessly, excuse me, effortlessly wins the competition. She wins the crown. How? Again, her invisible God, her unmentioned God, is working all things for her good. He has positioned Mordecai and he has positioned Esther to, most importantly, save his people for his name's fame. Join me in chapter 2, verses 19 to 23. When the virgins were gathered together the second time, then Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate. Esther had not yet told anyone about her kinsmen or her people, just as Mordecai had commanded her. Indeed, Esther was doing what Mordecai declared that she do, just as she had done when she was being brought up by him. In those days, while Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, Bigthan and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs from those who were doorkeepers, became furious and sought to send forth their hand against King Ahasuerus. But the matter became known to Mordecai, and he told it to Queen Esther, and Esther said it to the king in Mordecai's name. Then the matter was sought out and found out to be true. So they were both hanged on the gallows. And it was written in a book, of the, in the book of the Chronicles, in the king's presence. We've got, we've got just three points tonight. Highly applicational points. Brief points. Number one, submission blesses us more than we know. Submission blesses us more than we know. Look with me at verses 19 to 20. And when the virgins were gathered together the second time, then Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate. Now, the backstory, I think we're getting backstory of, of the plot. 
that it occurs before Esther is made queen. I think that's what we're being told. Back when the virgins were being brought forth in front of King Xerxes the second time, it was during the competition that her cousin was a royal official sitting in the king's court. He's one of the king's advisors. He's a very important figure. He's privy to information. Esther, as we continue in the text, had not yet told anyone about her kinsman. That's Mordecai. He's her kinsman redeemer. He's the one responsible for her, much like we read of Boaz with Naomi and Ruth. She had not told anyone about her people. That is, she's not told anyone that Mordecai, this guy that's an elite in the, 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 the uh, royal court, is her cousin, is her dad by proxy. She's not told anyone that she's a Hebrew, that she's a Jew, just as Mordecai had commanded her. So Mordecai had told her, do not say anything. Don't say you're related to me and don't tell them that you are from Israel. Indeed, Esther was doing what Mordecai declared that she do, just as she had done when she was being brought up by him. Okay, pause. Esther is the queen. She's the queen of the known world. She is the most powerful woman on the planet. And do wise, godly women flex their power? What a rebuke of our current culture this is. Does Esther begin to criticize Mordecai? Or the patriarchy? We don't hear any lip about it. She sits enthroned as Mordecai's queen. She rules over the man who raised her, and yet she still obeys him. That is fascinating. Fascinating. We're learning godly femininity. She is an adult woman over an empire, and she obeys her cousin who's been made responsible in the sight of God for her life. Esther submits to Mordecai because Esther submits to God. Little does she know a murderous plot is brewing below. She doesn't know that. She's just fearing God, loving God, and she's obeying her cousin responsible for her. She doesn't know the benefits that God is bringing from that. I'm sure there were times that Mordecai advised her against what she wanted. I'm sure there were things, times when Mordecai frustrated her, upset her, where she didn't, didn't agree with Mordecai. But she wisely heeds the counsel of men who love her. Not just Mordecai, but that eunuch. She took all his advice. He told her, listen, don't take, don't ask for anything. She, I mean, she had every reason to want gifts from the king. She obeyed the eunuch. She becomes queen. Ladies, let me, let me apply this to you. If you do not have a godly father, first of all, if you have a godly father, you are immensely blessed. And you have a man you should listen to. If you don't have a godly father, if you don't have a father who loves the Lord, get one. Go find one. 
We have godly men in this room. Spend time with them and their wives. Get a father in the faith. And spend your time with them. And invite them over time into all the aspects of your life. And ask for their counsel. Ask for their opinions on, on your, your, all your affairs in life. Get sight on your life from a godly man. And brothers, we're not exempt from application. Every single person in this room is under authority, and we would be wise to love it. I'm a man under authority. I have men to whom I'm accountable. I'm accountable to the entire church. But I've got Chuck as my boss, I've got Andre as an older brother. I've got the elders that are all over, accountable to them. We are men under authority. We are women under authority. And we would be wise to love the authority that God has given us. None of them are perfect. But what God has designed is good, no less. Submission to God and men, submission to our leaders under God, blesses us. More than we know. I want you to pause. I want you to think. How blessed am I by being under godly leadership? By being under God, first of all, submitting to him and his designs. But by submitting to the men in our lives. How blessed am I? I want you to think about that. Think and get a feeling of how blessed you are. And then realize you're way more blessed than you realize. We're way more blessed than we realize. Pride and disrespect leave God's protection and it exposes us to the assaults of an enemy who wants to isolate us and harm us. We only hurt ourselves when we extract ourselves under God's headship, under his protection, under his designs for godly leadership. That's why we read in Ephesians 6 these repetitions to those under authority. For example, wives, be subject to your own husband's As to the Lord. O women, choose wisely whom you marry. Because you have to submit to him as if you're submitting to Christ himself. Wow. So also the wives ought to be to their own husbands in everything. Submission in how much? Everything. O women, choose wisely who you marry. Children, obey your parents in the Lord. For this is right. If you're under your parents' household, guys, if you're under your, house, your, your parents' household, gals, obey your parents. That's what's right. Slaves, or we might say employees, be obedient to those who are your masters according to the flesh with fear and trembling in the integrity of your heart as to Christ. Obey your boss as if they are Jesus Christ. Finally. Be strong in the Lord and in the might of his strength. Put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood. Did you ever catch that that comes right after these repeated commands of submission in our varying roles in life? Be strong in the Lord. Esther is Ephesians 5 and 6. We fight a demonic enemy. We fight a spiritual war. We fight the Christian fight by submission. 
and the world dies by throwing it off. Submission is God's loving gift to protect us. Secondly, submission is blessing us more than we know. Secondly, Satan wants to steal, kill, and destroy everything and everyone. Satan wants to steal, kill, and destroy everyone and everything. Verse 21. In those days, while Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, Bigfen and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs from those who were the doorkeepers, became furious and sought to send forth their hand against King Ahasuerus. They're the ones that are, they're the bodyguards at the door. They're, they're, the, they're the trusted ones. No one gets to the king except them. And they're the ones that end up conspiring to assassinate the king. Somehow, we foolishly believe, I want you guys to think about this. Somehow, we foolishly believe, all of us think this to some degree, we foolishly believe that Satan loves unbelievers. That Satan's people, that he loves them, has affection for them, that he's friendly towards them. That's wrong. Satan murderously hates all of God's image bearers. Satan doesn't love King Xerxes, who is single-handedly responsible for the slaughter of millions upon millions. You would think, it's weird, we have this, deep down, we have kind of this subconscious thought that Satan loves his own. That he's looking out for them. King Xerxes is slaughtering millions upon millions. He's doing Satan's finest work on the planet at this time. Satan wants to steal his life, wants to kill his life, wants to destroy Xerxes' life. Obviously, an assassination of the king would result in the death of the queen as well. But Satan would eradicate the entire planet of all human beings if possible. It's outrageous that anyone worships Satan or adheres to Satanism without worshiping Satan. Satan hates you. If you are a living, breathing human being, Satan hates you. You've heard the popular slogan going around being printed on t-shirts, Satan respects pronouns. No, he doesn't. He hates everyone. He hates all of you. He hates everyone out there. He wants to steal. He wants to kill. He wants to destroy. He befriends, air quotes, anything that steals human dignity, anything that kills human decency, and anything that destroys humanity. The image of God, he hates it. Where it exists, He would snuff it out. Now, before Esther moves to conflict between pagans and God's people, remember, the pagans are first killing each other or attempting to do so. We, the people of God, must, as we just heard a little while ago, have compassion on the lost who are all, every single one of them, victims of a ruthless, lying, stealing, killing destroyer. 
Be compassionate on every single person with whom you come in contact, no matter how deceived, no matter how angry they are in their deceit. No matter how much their view of God and Christ and the gospel and Christians are completely wrong, be compassionate. Satan wants to kill them. Thirdly and finally, God protects both the righteous and the unrighteous. In verses 22 to 23, you remember Jesus said, God causes the rain to fall on the righteous and on the unrighteous. He causes the sun to rise on both the righteous and the unrighteous. Both those who love God and those who do not receive benefits of God's goodness in creation. But the matter became known to Mordecai and he told it to Queen Esther. And Esther said it to the king in Mordecai's name. She gave Mordecai credit. Then the matter was sought out and found out to be true. So they were both hanged on a gallows, and it was written in the book of the Chronicles in the king's presence. How do we end? Our God is just. Our God is good. Everything God does and ordains is right. It is God who leads Mordecai to uncover a plot. A conspiracy to assassinate the king is foiled. How? God has positioned Mordecai. God has positioned Esther just right. Wisely, Esther credits her cousin so that both their security grows in the empire. It's very smart. The traitors are not hung on a tree, by the way. They're impaled on stakes is the idea. It's a gruesome, gruesome picture. And everything is written down, recorded in the royal history. But what's lacking? What's the thing that doesn't happen? What's the thing that history tells us Persian kings would always do that King Xerxes fails to do? He fails to reward. He fails to award Mordecai, who has saved his life, which is, again, going to be God's providential path to saving the entire nation. Now, let me ask you something. Have you, have, you ever, have you ever actually been forgotten or overlooked? I want you to think about this. When, when were you forgotten or overlooked in a way that made you feel scared or hurt or sad or angry? How did it feel? What thoughts of God, whether conscious or subconscious, what thoughts of God came to mind? Would we think God a stranger in moments like that? Would we feel forsaken in moments like that or seasons like that? I want to say something that's blessed my soul. My, my, my personality, my temperament, I tend towards melancholy. That means I, I tend to have bouts of gloom. Um, my world, if I'm not careful, if I'm not seeking the Lord, 
and seeking joy in the Lord, rejoicing in the Lord, cultivating an attitude of gratitude in the Lord. Can't believe I just said that. Um, <laughs> spontaneous. Okay, those things work, I guess. Um, if I'm not careful, my world's gray. And one thing that I've learned from Dr. Sibbs is that God only ever seems strange to us that he may appear more friendly at the end. If ever he seem, you seem like God's, God's being a stranger to me. God's forgotten me. God's forsaken me. He only ever allows you to feel that way. That he may, at the end of the tunnel, appear all the more friendly. More friendly than you have ever known him to be. It's us who feel wrongly. We feel forsaken. We only ever feel forsaken. Christ was forsaken. We only ever feel crushed. Christ was crushed. We only ever feel forgotten. Christ was forgotten in a manner of speaking on that cross as he bore all God's anger against us. Listen to me, dear sweet young man, dear sweet young lady. Don't confuse the feelings of a fallen body that never feels rightly with God's actual attitude towards you. Don't ever trust the way you're feeling God is with who God really is. You only feel forgotten, forsaken, crushed. And you only feel that because you're broken and you're in bodies that are corrupted with sin and think harmful thoughts of God. But God is always, always, always one billion percent for his people and never against them at all. And the death of his son is proof. It's proof. And so... God neglected to praise Mordecai in a moment. And I'm sure Mordecai felt every bit of that. Can you imagine? You've just saved the king and nothing. Not so much as a word. And they recorded it in his presence. He's sitting there while they're putting it in the book. And he doesn't thank you. He doesn't give you a gift. But the fact that the king forgets or neglects is exactly what God is going to use to save Mordecai's life and Esther's life and the life of all the Jews in Persia very soon. Mordecai's momentary loss is going to be the very reason or the very cause by which God brings about glory for the rest of his life. And it reminds me, and we'll close with this, 1 Peter 1, you are being protected, dear Christian, by the power of God, through God's gift of faith to you, for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this, you greatly rejoice, even though now, for a little while, if necessary, like Mordecai, you have been grieved by various trials. So that the proof of your faith, 
the faith God gave you, the faith God's guarding. Being more precious than gold, which is perishable, by the way, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Dear Christian, this is it, and then I'm done. God has miraculously given you faith, brought you to life from death, given you belief in Jesus. God did that. And he's not only given it to you, he's protecting that faith. He's keeping you from losing all faith. You feel like you're going to lose all faith sometimes, and yet why do you never? Because God's guarding you through his gift of faith. And that gift of faith that God has given you and guarded, guess what he's going to do with it when Jesus Christ, King Jesus, comes to planet Earth? It's astonishing. He is going to say, Kenton Lang, stand up. And he's going to have all of heaven and earth stand in ovation in glory and honor and praise of Kenton's faith. And what, what's Kenton's response going to be? God, you gave me this faith. You guarded this faith. And he's going to say, and I am delighted to honor and praise and glorify that faith, buddy. Well done. Well done. We've got such a good God. Such a good God. Let's bow to him now. Father. We ask that you would give us grace to worship you, the God of Esther, of Mordecai, the God who's working all things together for our good and your glory. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for joining me for this sermon from the Trinity College and Young Adult Ministry. We would love for you to join us in person soon. For up-to-date information, follow our Instagram at trinityc.ya. For information regarding Trinity Community Church, visit trinitycc.com. Until he returns, may the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you.